Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a very exciting roundtable between Mike Isratel and Jordan Peters, two huge guys, two guys very knowledgeable, all about bodybuilding, and I'm very excited to dig into some things today. So without further ado, I'll let Jordan kind of take the floor, talk a bit about kind of his methods behind hypertrophy and kind of his ideologies and anything he kind of wants to bounce off Mike and we'll just let the conversation flow. So guys. Thanks, buddy. Um, firstly, it's a pleasure. Like, um, I, like I said to you in, in the previous podcast, I, I've uh, I'm, I'm a big Mike Isretel fan. Um, I, I really am. I'm a big Jordan Peters fan. <laughs> so it's, it's it's nice to brother have conversations, um, and you know that the person you're having the conversation with really gets what you're talking about. Um, because you you're so passionate about training in the same way that I am. So I've always kind of just enjoyed reading everything that you put out. So it's nice to finally be able to have a chat. Thank um, you so much. Pleasure. Um, so from what I understand, you and I actually train quite differently in a lot of ways. Certainly some similarities, of course, in regards to our, our kind of like um, understanding of volume and frequency and our, and our exercise, exercise selection. But I, I, I know that there are some some things that we do differently. So one of the things that I'll jump straight on is that I noticed that you like to run with a, a, a particular exercise for a given time for a given time frame until you then kind of max out that exercise and then you alternate it. Have you always kind of favoured that approach as opposed to alternating an exercise across maybe three sessions, maybe having a session A, B, C, and then going back to an A, or have you preferred to always run it the way that you do, where you'll run a straight movement? until you've just destroyed it? So that's a good question. I've, I've trained in a bunch of different ways. I've trained uh, where I just do different exercises every session, sort of at random. Uh, currently, uh, I actually train each muscle group uh, an average of two to three times per week, sometimes sure. four for some muscle groups. And what I'll do is the different sessions per week, they'll have all usually different exercises for the same muscle group. So for example, like for that, for back, I'll do pull-ups one session, pull-downs the next session, yeah. and then cycle back to pull-ups. Sure. So I don't just do pull-ups, 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 pull-ups until it goes to hell. Um, there's definitely some intra-microcycle cycling of movements. So the different sessions sure. definitely have different movements. But every single week, I repeat the same movements for months on end. Uh, and I've used to alternate them every month. And before that, I alternated them every week. Um, so, okay. I, and now I've been recently been alternating, alternating them every one to four months. Um, and for I can ex get into later exactly why I alternate movements and how I choose to alternate them. Sure. Um, it's funny because I would say the last kind of eight weeks of my training is the first time I've been stuck with one movement each time I do it in the week. So I, I'm, I'm the same as you in the sense that like leg one for the week will have maybe a hack squat and then leg two will have a leg press. But then the next week again, leg one will still then be a hack squat again. Whereas previously uh, it would maybe rotate across like a, like a leg one, leg two, then a leg three, then a leg four before I would get back to my hack squat movement again. Mm. Um, and, and I think that uh, deciding at what point you, you decide to just stick with one movement to try to really drive up your loading on that exercise i mean can you can you think of what made you change your decision as to kind of do that well so it's definitely i think uh the um 
your rotation method is very interesting because it's not actually random. You know, like most people of our muscularity, national level guys and pros and stuff, um, or in my case, dog shit bodybuilder that is pretty jacked. Um, <laughs> most jacked people, um, they actually, unfortunately, and this is where you and I kind of stand apart from, unfortunately, most what most people do, they come in and look at their training partner. They're like, what do you want to do, bro? And they just pick random fucking movements every single session and just don't track anything. They have no idea how strong they are. Just kind of train haphazardly. And so that definitely has some really significant disadvantages as a training method. And, you know, just, just for the with sort of pleasure and uh, uh, the edification of the viewers, it's, you know, it, you is very difficult to apply progressive overload when you have no idea what overload is. Um, there is a notion, there's a very interesting notion that if you just train hard, and this is something actually, uh, Jordan, I'd love to hear your insight about because I think you and I are going to be very much on the same plane here. People say, look, if you just train hard, you don't need to keep track of your numbers because overload applies itself. Like if you just train hard every time, as you get stronger, you lose more weight. The thing is that doesn't integrate the psychology of lifting. Like when you come up to a 500 or 600 pound stiff legged deadlift or 300 pound bent over row, you have to look at your logbook because you just won't put that much weight on the bar unless you do. You, you actually, you, there's no part of me that is like, yeah, I feel like doing this. Fuck that. I don't feel like doing that shit at all. I don't want to squat all that weight. And, and, and sometimes you don't even, I mean, I wonder if you, do you ever like not even believe your logbook? Like it says you squatted 455 for 10 and you're like, that means I'm supposed to squat 460 for 10. Like, fuck that. I feel like doing 315. I'm going to fuck this. And then you actually look at your logbook. You actually do it. And by heaven and earth, somehow you do. And you're like, wow, like I had to actually track my numbers in order to make sure I overloaded. Because if you just go by feel, I think a lot of times you'll never even go super hard. What do you think about that? Have you noticed I, I, that in your training? I 100% agree. And, and a great example of this is that where I train right now, um, some of the kit, is upstairs and one of the sessions I did I left my logbook downstairs I went upstairs and I, and I thought I knew what my number was I went at the set really really hard and I came back down and I was like fuck I didn't look at my number before I did it and 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 I, I, I skewed my set and I know I would have got that number if I knew the right number and it's really interesting how the psychology can play a role there yeah um, and I will I will typically write out all of this, the numbers that I want to hit for that session before I even get in the gym. And I'm already mentally rehearsing the big moves because if you don't factor that in, you will never be able to reach the levels of strength that some of the greats have that then have reflected into their physiques. For sure, 100%. And it's one of those things where you can say, well, I'll just try really hard. There's a difference between really hard and you're under 600 pounds and it's live or die. Like, and you have to get nine reps. You don't even think you can. Like, do you ever have it where you do the first couple of reps and you're like, there's no way I'm getting nine reps? And then somehow, by heaven and earth, you somehow do because you had that number in your head. If you just went to failure or just tried really hard, you know, you'd pat yourself on the back for seven reps or something like that. And you'd be like, I did well, you know, it was a good day. But if you don't have something telling you like, no, you're capable of this, you're just never going to train hard enough and maybe not get as strong as you could over time, maybe not stimulate as much. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely, without a doubt. Um, there are certainly some movements where that's really true for me. Certain leg press variations. Like, Corinne says this a lot. She'll think to herself, she says that like I got to like five or six reps and she thinks I'm, I'm about to call that set a day. And then I, I, I'll grind that shit out to like 16 reps because I know yeah. that that's what I've got to hit. And that, that's 
again, really true of that. So again, for the listeners, this is why Mike and myself pick exercises the way we do and that we just really progress them to, to yep. until we just drive them into the ground. And For then, sure. Then they need to be dropped out. And then even then, if I really, really love an exercise, I'll be stubborn at dropping it because I'll be like, okay, I'm going to give this fucker a go again next week. I'm like, yep. something with my recovery had to have been off why I didn't get this. And it'll yep. only be able to kind of miss a movement maybe two or three times where I'm yep. like, okay, this movement's now got to go. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, the way we calculate maximum recoverable volume is not on one session. It's on two consecutive sessions. Like one okay. session, you could just fuck up. Two sessions in a row, you're starting to think, okay, maybe something's going south. So so on that note of, uh, you know, a random approach to exercises, if you don't keep a logbook, it's just total dog shit. I, people say, like, oh, I just do what I want. I'm like, it's, okay, that's nice. I don't want to talk to you. Get the fuck out of my face. But when you present these two options of do we have an exercise rotation scheme that rotates every three or four sessions, but it comes back to the same exercises and you keep a logbook versus do you rotate just one or two or even just one? I honestly don't think that there is a distinct answer to that that is either true or false, better or worse. I think it's dependent on the lifter, their level of advancement, and situationally dependent. And there's a whole lot of gray area where I think both approaches work pretty well. For example, if you're using relative beginner lifters, and especially if they're lifting at a gym where there's just not that much equipment, you know, like go to a regular gym, there's like a squat rack, one leg press, no hack squat, and that's it. You're like, okay, you're gonna have to do the same movements over and over a lot. And because you're a relative beginner, sort of intermediate, you need a lot of neurological work, just technique work to keep getting better at those movements. If you rotate too many movements in, they just get confused. They think the hack squat's the leg press, and sumo versus conventional squat just gets all fucked up, and they end up squatting in between somewhere. Whereas for advanced lifters, first of all, they know the techniques well enough that they don't degrade over several weeks or even over three or four. Second of all, the amount of total fatigue that an exercise causes you is massive and just doing a different variation can allow you to still hit the musculature without suffering from that exercise specific fatigue. I don't know if you've experienced this in your training, but like if you do a hard session of squats or leg presses and like on a Monday, on a Thursday, you could be recovered in the muscles, like you're not sore. Someone's like leg press, you're like, hell no, anything else for the love of God. There's no way I'm getting a PR on that. I don't want to fucking see a leg press for three or four more sessions. You hit another exercise and you do just as well. You do super well. It's that variation, that rotation, probably because it hits some motor units slightly, probably some central nervous system stuff where your brain doesn't have to push on the same levers. And that's a really big benefit. So I think for very advanced athletes, I think a three or four cycle rotation like you do it is really awesome so long as, one, you keep a logbook. And you don't just randomly like, oh, it's squats again. What did I do last time? Who cares? Let's just try hard. And two, as long as you come back and back and back to those rotations for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, I think that ends up being a totally awesome way to train. I've run a four-cycle rotation before. It was really productive. I've also run a two-cycle rotation. It was really productive. For me and my level of advancement, there's actually no way unless I have moderate reps or something like that, do a different number of reps, uh, there's no way I can do – uh, the same exercises back to back to back and be productive. Like if you said, hey, Monday bent rows hard, Thursday bent rows hard in the same five to 10 rep range, I'd be like, this one of those is just not going to happen, right? And then what do you do next week? Bent row, bent row, bent row, bent row, are you just going to hit the ground? But if you have a, a bigger rotation, you can have really good workouts as long as when you look back two weeks ago, the last time you did bent over rows, you're like, okay, I hit 315 pounds for a set of 12. This time it's 320 for a set of 12 or 315 for a set of 13. Something's got to go up. Then it happens, and then you're good to go. 
Sure. That's good. I'm glad I'm glad that we kind of put something out there for people to kind of uh, at least at least make them realize that log booking their lifts is, is, is pretty essential. I just can't understand how people don't do it. I like it it fucking baffles the imagination how people can come into the gym, people that are professional bodybuilders and just do stuff. Like you're really gonna put your career on the line for just doing stuff? Like, can you imagine someone's like, hey, you took second at the Mr. Olympia, and you're like, yeah. Like, what do you think you could have done better to take first? Like, I could have actually known what I was doing and didn't just do shit at random. Like, what? <laughs> I, Why I think, are you doing that already? I think, though, that this is where you and I fall down maybe in the genetic capability card that we then have to make up for in the fact that we can work really fucking hard. So then if we track our hard work, like we can get the progress we have, but when those guys are so gifted, they, they've never needed to, to look for another way to try and make progress. They yeah. just look at the weight and they're like, okay, I'm growing. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for them, when you're at the Olympia, everyone's gifted. And then, and then what are you going to do? Like there's a bunch of, here's a quintessential example. Cause you know, a lot of people on Instagram and everywhere else like to do a whole lot of nut hugging, right? Like, Oh, but this guy's so good. Thus, everything he says and does has to be valid and has to work for me. Like, that would be nice if it was true, but it's not. For example, I'm not trying to talk shit or whatever, but this person probably would admit this himself. Jordan, I'll ask you a question. If Kevin Levrone didn't take six to eight months off every year, how many Olympias do you think he would have? I think he'd have at least two Olympias. Agreed. So when someone's like, well, you'd be like, you, you, you know, someone's like, uh, hey, like, why do you take so much time off between shows? And someone could be like, Lavrone did it. Yeah, Lavrone also underperformed his genetics by a long shot. Like, she said better genetics than probably as good as genetics as Ronnie Coleman at various points. And, sure. and he, I mean, in his prime, could I must certainly, like Dorian Yates in 1997. Dorian Yates in 1997 was like a Mr. Potato Head. Half his body had fallen off. Like he had torn every conceivable muscle, you know? And it was like, he still beat everybody because everybody just didn't keep a long book. They didn't try as hard, essentially, and they weren't as meticulous. Like I remember one story about Dorian Yates was like he was at a trade show and he was signing autographs. And then someone like the promoter turns around. He's just not there. He's like, oh, my God, where the fuck did Dorian Yates go? And they like couldn't track him down, and they found him. And then he comes back, and they're like, where the fuck were you? He's like, I had to eat. And he was like, well, you were signing autographs. He's like, you don't understand. Like, my eating is non-negotiable. I have to eat because I'm going to win the Mr. Olympia this year, which means I miss zero meals. And it's like, oh, holy shit. Like, that's the level of dedication you're working with. So when you have, like, really good genetics, but you fucking disappear for half the year, uh, you know, you, you'll be really good and you'll have fans and you'll have make money, but how many Olympias are you going to win? Well, the answer in Kevin LeBron's case, unfortunately, zero. You know what I mean? So, like, I think the genetics argument is definitely one that we have to contend with. Like, why is that guy so good? Because genetics. But also, he would be better if he tracked. I just don't think it's for everyone. I mean, let me ask you a question. Uh, you coach a shitload of really good guys. Do you ever run in to, or how often do you run in to people who you try to get into thinking and tracking and they just aren't having it and they just fall off the wagon? Um, a really, really good example is, is one of the, is someone that actually has the potential to be a top Olympian bodybuilder. And he's, he's, he's a UK competitor called Sasan and he's a really, really good friend of mine. And I, I, I adore him, but we did a post-show, um, rebound phase when he, after he competed in New York and he trained with me for 12 weeks solid and we log booked everything. He was touching weights that he'd never touched in his life. Physically, he looked it was mind blowing. 
after that 12-week period, the way that that training made him feel about training, he then had to take six months off of training. Like, and that's not a dig at Sass at all because he knows that I, I absolutely adore him. But it's just like when they're not used to kind of being put into that scenario and then you really, really push them, sometimes they, they really, really don't like it. And, and the way it makes them feel is so alien. Um, and and that, that was sadly what happened there. Is it the psychological pressure of having to hit PRs? Absolutely. He, 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 like, I, uh, Mike, I can't tell you the number of training partners that I have burnt out because they can't turn up session after session and do that. Like the only person that has been able to consistently do that with me for years is my partner, Corin. And she's just a bit of a machine. Like, like everyone else I have ever trained with has to take extended periods of time off from training with me because they get so anxious coming to the gym, having to lift what they've got to lift, that they, they, it then just falls apart. How do you deal with it? I, I revel in it. I love it. Like, like that's my chance to take my mini win for the day. Right. Um, like I, I'm, I'm literally addicted to that feeling. Do you get nervous? Of course, yeah. But it's like a I, again. So today my move was like a snatch grip deadlift, and God, I was nervous all morning. And I was like, okay, I've got to get this. I've got to get this. And and then in that moment, it's like, right, let's make this happen. And then I love that moment. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's that's really where I'm probably my best. Like I'm not a great competitive bodybuilder, but I, in that moment where it's like, can you find it? I always can, and, and that's mm. the most enjoyable part of training for me do you think some other guys maybe can't find that sort of victorious feeling or is it that the the hours of nervousness beforehand they just get sick and tired of being nervous all the time it's, it's gonna it's got to be a combination of both um and then equally i think something that might play a role is they're maybe not controlling the factors that influence their recovery particularly well whereas once you kind of understand what you're trying to achieve in regards to your volume and your intensity and you know the way that your recovery impacts these things you'll then be very meticulous to make that happen but if they can't control those external factors in such a way then that's going to build on that anxiety because they're going to be like fuck i feel like this and i, I can't even recover from this and where yeah. is this going to spiral to that's a big deal like it, it you know when you're having good training and especially good eating and good rest and sleep and you're at home you sort of like when I'm, because you know I I logbook absolutely everything, and I have distinct numbers I'm trying to hit every session. I know I'm hitting those numbers. I yeah. don't walk into the gym as much nervous. I'm nervous for like the pain, but I'm not nervous so much that I'm not going to hit the movement because I know I can do it because my recovery has been so on point. But like I can imagine like some guys, you know, partying, staying up late. Can you imagine showing up to a deadlift session and you like sort of partied a lot last night? Like I don't know what the fuck I would do. I'd be like, oh my god, I'm going to die here. Like there's no way I'm recovered yeah. for it, and then you Pretty start much. to get nervous. And then especially, especially if you've kind of only just been introduced to a logbook, and then you were looking down at it and thinking, "Well, that's not happening." <laughs> right, for sure. You know, it's it's funny. I actually heard a story. I don't know if this is true. I heard a story from a friend of mine about um, uh, what they do in Kuwait at Oxygen Gym, and apparently the guys there, uh, you know, when they start training camp for the shows, you know, the the whole team. The training is, is multiple sessions a day and, and so on, a bunch of sessions per week because that's all they do, right? Um, they said, like, there's people before training pacing around in the parking lot because they're scared to go in because of how hard the training is going to be. <laughs> he's like, why is that guy walking around the parking lot? Because he doesn't, he hasn't 
guy got in his mind right to go inside yet. Like, holy shit. <laughs> like, if I showed up to that gym and be like, damn, okay, there's some real stuff happening in there. Not just yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so let's move on to another question or, or something that we can kind of consider. So in regards to the total volume that you accumulate across the week, uh, I am certain that any given point, you're very sure of what you can and can't recover from. Um, but the, the, the volume that you do accrue, do you leave reps in reserve on anything that you do? Almost everything. Um, I think I haven't gone to true failure, but for a few times every mesocycle for the last five years. Um, so I start every mesocycle basically about three or four reps shy of failure. Sure. And I hit a certain number of reps and write them down. And then every single week I add a set or two. Sometimes I don't add sets if my recovery doesn't allow it. And sure. then I try to increase either uh, the amount of weight on the bar or the number of repetitions I do per set. And then I let my reps in reserve fall wherever they may. And generally speaking, with that, so you know, on good days, reps in reserve are actually quite uh, quite high. Like I can do still, like sometimes I'll put five kilos on the bar and my reps in reserve will be four RIR, whereas the week before with five kilos less, they were three RIR. I'm like, oh, that, that's really sweet, right? And then, you know, I clearly, my, my you know, progression is really good. And then sometimes I have a bad day, recovery's off, whatever. Sometimes it's unpredictable and it's one RIR instead or two RIR or something. So then what ends up happening is I continue on like that. And uh, towards the end of my mesocycle, I'm generally hitting one rep in reserve on compound movements and sometimes zero reps in reserve for, um, you know, isolation movements and so on and so forth. I rarely hit true failure, which I guess is when it's not zero reps in reserve and true failure aren't the same thing. Uh, zero reps in sure. reserve is when you complete one good repetition and you know it's your last one on your rack. Yeah. True failure is when you get stuck halfway through and somebody has to pull yeah. that shit off of you. So I almost never go to true failure. Occasionally, I, I, I curls and stuff, I will. But um, I go to zero reps in reserve relatively often, um, but it's almost always in the last week of my mesocycle, which typically lasts for four accumulation week, one deload week, and then I repeat the process. That is, that is where you and I train very differently. Um, very, very different. I, because I will. So, how long will a mesocycle last for you? Uh, five weeks total. So, four accumulation weeks and one deload week. And then I usually use most of the same exercises again. Instead of the volume being super high, I drop it down to what's minimally effective. I take the reps in reserve from zero and one, and I go back to three and four. I take some of the the average weight, like the average uh, uh, weight for the all the exercises I'm doing. I'll, instead of the weight at the beginning of the last meso, I'll take an average of like the middle of the weight uh, usually and then start at that and go up to a higher level and do that for three or four mesocycles in a row. And then at various points, I'll take out various exercises, so on and so forth. And then sometimes the phase changes. Like during a fat loss phase, it'll be like three or four mesocycles in a row. And then the end of the fat loss phase, rotate a bunch of exercises out, really change the volume, begin muscle gain phase, so on and so forth. Okay. That's... Obviously, it's smart. It sounds stupid of me to say it's smart, um, but I, I really like the way that that has been put together. Um, like I, I don't train in that fashion at all. In the sense, that how do you I, train? I train at zero reps in reserve year round, <laughs> um, and that, like, that has been very effective for me, but. When I compare that to the way that you do it, 
I'm, I have to really be in such total control of my recovery capabilities to make that happen. Yeah. Like, I, there is no wiggle room for anything that could potentially mitigate my chances of recovery. Yeah. I guess my method leaves a bit more wiggle room, but it also requires me to do more work. So like actually, actually there would yeah, be a like, big difference in total volume that you would accumulate. For sure, for sure. So I think there's like some advantages and disadvantages of both methods. Um, for example, like uh, you know, there are some distinct upsides to the way you do things that get very close to failure, to failure, uh, and relatively low volume. So first of all, I think that you're very likely to recruit uh, pretty much all of your high threshold motor units and they'll stimulate basically the entire muscle fiber uh, or the entire muscle, especially the parts of the muscle that are most likely to grow from heavy weights, like the fastest switch motor units. I definitely, you know, in the first week of training, I recruit them, but maybe not to their fullest capacity by a long shot and I'm not fully stimulating them. Uh, in addition to that, your method of training is, is superbly good at growing faster twitch muscle fibers because faster twitch muscle fibers generally have higher threshold motor units. They don't really turn on or get stimulated unless you go real close to failure. Uh, they don't get their maximum benefit unless you train relatively heavy and for low repetitions, which you generally train. And they don't, uh, and they require a, a lot, long time to heal between sessions and you take more time between sessions than I do relative to how much volume you're doing per session. So you might do yes. a few working sets and take half a week off. I do like 10 working sets and take a third of a week off. So faster twitch fibers definitely respond better to that kind of training than slower twitch fibers. So it definitely favors them. And the good news is faster twitch fibers just straight up grow more. They're bigger to begin with and they grow more than slower twitch fibers. So that's a huge benefit. Uh, another interesting potential benefit of the way you train is you train so hard in every session that, uh, and because you take longer rests between sessions, you essentially get like a functional overreaching each session where like I might push my body to within 90% of its systemic abilities each session. You push it to 100%. Uh, and what that ends up happening is it sends the body through a cycle of adaptive response where it actually deteriorates and gets worse for a little while and then super compensates to get better later, which in my approach, it never really gets worse, but it just doesn't get much better. So I like sort of sum up little tiny improvements over time, whereas you go uh, like down and then back up and then down and then back up at the peaks are higher. So there's a potential pretty big benefit there. And another really, um, I think, underestimated uh, benefit of training with higher intensities, closer to failure and lower volumes is, is that if you do take more time between sessions and if you take uh, less volume in a session, the ratio of muscle to joint recovery favors the joints considerably. So for example, okay. it, it like what, what ends up happening is you stimulate your muscles to a certain extent. I would say that if you did more sets, you would stimulate your muscles more, but you don't tax your joints all that much because it's only a few sets and you, you joints, it's pretty common understanding in sports science that joints and connective tissues just straight up take longer to heal than muscle tissue itself. So you stimulate muscle tissue well enough to grow it. Maybe you could grow it more on an average week if you did more work, but that more work requires more joint degradation. And if you train more frequently and with higher volume, your muscles heal between sessions totally fine but your joints sometimes don't get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's not a sustainable strategy. I actually don't know anyone that trains like 
very hard, three sessions a week per muscle group and can actually continue to do that forever. But in, in your case, if you train with fewer sessions, less total volume per session, you, your joints actually recover just about at the same time as your muscles. And like you said, you train to failure all year round. That's not a concern because your joints probably never give you any serious issues because they're always recovered around the same time that your muscles are. I, that definitely leaves muscle growth on the table in any one week. I don't know if it leaves much on the table in any one year. So what I would say is like, I think there are intelligent ways to have a higher frequency, higher volume approach, but that's not a sustainable approach. It's funny. We do this thing at RP where we do resensitization blocks. And Steve Hall actually has a new book out called The Primer Phase, which is almost the same thing. And you basically train with a ton of frequency and volume for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's just unsustainable for your joints and for everything. Whereas your method is much more sustainable. And then what we have to do is we have to take the entire month phases of really low frequency, really low volume to just recover everything, to resensitize the body to growth so we can go into one of those phases again. So I think that you know your method has all of those advantages, and those advantages uh, might be even greater for people that are really advanced, really know how to push themselves, and are really trying to save their connective tissues uh, than some other methods would. So I would say there's there's a pros for that that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, there are some cons as well. Would you like to hear the cons? Of, I think so. I think, I think uh, sharing the cons as well would be great. Super. So some of the cons, um, it's not super clear from the research that uh, there, there's a huge difference in muscle growth, at least in the short term with relatively untrained people, between two reps in reserve, for example, and zero reps in reserve. Like those two reps between there, there's probably, I would bet there's more growth. But the real question is, how much growth are you adding versus how much fatigue? Psychologically, sure. for sure, it's a massive amount of fatigue. Like you yeah. need to get deep down into your own inner hatred to get those last two reps. And that's not a sustainable thing every session for some people. Like you described, got guys burn out all the time for that shit. They just can't handle those last two reps. Like if you cut all their sets, two reps in reserve, they would be still around. They'd be fine. They might not be as jacked, but they would be around. Um, so there's a stimulus to fatigue ratio possibility there where the stimulus is higher going closer to failure, but the fatigue might be even higher still. So in order to survive that kind of program, you might have to reduce the total volume, maybe more than optimal, and you might have to stretch out the recovery time between sessions, maybe more than optimal, or some, you'd have to do something because the amount of fatigue per unit of work that a two failure set generates is massive possibly into a little disproportionate to how much muscle it grows. On the other hand, if someone said, just looking at the literature, how much benefit is their training at failure versus two reps in reserve? You'd have to say, just looking at the science is like, mm, it doesn't seem to be a big difference, if any. If you look at the volume differences, there's always differences. Like you get more muscle growth from two sets than you do from one set. You get more from three than you do from two. You get more from five than you do from four and so on and so forth. So the real question is, what if we, instead of going to failure, stop too shy of failure and added, another, and added another set? We just straight up did another set, again, sub-maximal. Uh, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. Uh, because of the way I train, because I arrived at this logic, I suspect that the answer is you'd get more growth and less total fatigue if you stopped too shy of failure and just did more sets. I'm, of course, not positive on that, but that's my hypothesis. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the sort of injury risk stuff. Um, uh, is it necessary to train that heavy and they get that close to failure? 
as you get closer to failure, especially with the really heavy weights, your risk of acute injury goes up exponentially. So like very few people hurt themselves on rep number two of bench press. A lot of people hurt themselves on rep number seven and a half, where they could have only done 7.75 reps and oh, something goes and that's it. So if high, if training is that close to failure has a pretty marginal increase in risk of injury, my question is, is it worth it versus, again, just stopping two reps of fail or something like that and uh, doing more sets? And uh, I guess the la la sort of last critique is, um, you know, it takes uh, from this kind of training, relatively low frequency and low volume, your joints recover pretty well uh, on pace with your muscles. But another way of putting that is a lot of time is spent by your muscles essentially doing nothing, like they're done growing, but in order for your joints to recover and get ready to do such a crazy effort again and for psychology to recover, you're waiting an extra couple of days. Maybe if we did sub-maximal training, stop two reps shy of failure, did more sets, we could train instead of twice a week, three times a week. That means every time the muscle heals, it gets hit again and again and again and again, and that sums up to more growth. Again, that approach I don't think is sustainable, but maybe occasionally you would take one or two month period of doing higher frequency training not to failure, sum up a shitload of volume you start to break apart, deload, and then go back to that uh, different style of training and milk out the results. So, so those are kind of the thoughts on the downside of that. Super interesting because it's funny because, again, in the last discussion with Steve, I said the exact same thing. I said that I, I'm not sure what would allow for more muscle growth overall, leaving reps in reserve that would account for more volume or then going all the way there and then potentially eking out every drop of kind of in the session growth potential that you can and, and yeah it's, it's a really interesting discussion i think that i think that what, what's clear to me is that I'm, i feel like my approach is more of a meathead approach <laughs> and that yours is, is is a very well thought through approach in comparison I, I think yours is very well thought through and it, it depends on what era you examine actually the same era different people dorian yates had a similar approach to you but during the dorian yates era most of the other guys trained with multiple sets of submaximal volume like all the guys in california sean ray all those have you ever seen sean ray training videos he does like five sets per exercise and he never really hits failure he just kind of stops and you're like mm, okay so I, I think you know he's plenty he's more of a meathead than Dorian Yates ever will be. I mean, that's not exactly a think, you know, thinking man's bodybuilder. So I think it depends on like sort of how you see it. Do you just smash the volume? Do you smash the intensity? I think there's probably a middle ground there that makes sense for most people. Like if you're definitely, if you're doing like, like here's an example. Uh, you know, like the, I coined the whole MRV concept, maximum recoverable yeah. volume. Yes. And I, you know, I, credit you, I credit you every time I use that phrase, by the oh, way. Thank you. Thank you so much. You don't have to do that, but thank no, you I, so much. I feel like so, I do because it's such a great phrase that I, I just feel like I'm cheating if I don't credit oh, you. Well, thanks a lot, man. But uh, so in any case, people will say like, you know, my MRV is like 40 sets for back per week. Like, do you think that's right? And like my, my colleague, James Hoffman and I, we have like this skeptical eyebrow raise. If you tell us an MRV that high, man, you're probably like six reps in reserve. You just think you're one rep in reserve. Like you don't actually know how to train, or your technique sucks. Like your like your idea of a stiff-legged deadlift is you go halfway as low as you should be going, and you never even stretch your hamstrings. Like, oh, I can do ten sets of stiff-legged deadlifts. Shut the fuck up. No, you can't. You get these people in the gym, you show them an actual proper set of stiff-legged deadlifts, and they're like, oh my god, my hamstrings. Like, I don't know what the fuck you've been doing this whole time. So. There's that side of the coin, and then there's the other side of the coin of people who train way beyond failure, like like 
you your set was over five minutes ago and your training partner standing over sweating into your mouth like lifting the bar for you and you're like, ah, ah, ah. And like i'm not even sure how you track that it's like how do you even put that in a logbook like sure. i'll have i'll spot guys at the gym randomly you know like when you're a bigger guy people look well you're big enough to where people probably don't talk to you at all but <laughs> you know you know people look over at you and they're like can i get a spot and you're like god damn it i'm not here to do assisted upright rows of course it's on the bench press the guy's like 150 kilos on the bar you look at him and you're like okay you're either the strongest 75 kilo guy ever or you're not actually going to do this for 10 reps so he looks at you and he's like set of 10 and you're like i don't know okay sweet and then he'll almost always be like i'm gonna need help with the last five and i'm like god damn it like why and then of course like you know help i usually like what i'll do is help with one and then like just rack it and they'll be like exactly they what i do you, yeah, yeah. like they look at you and they're like uh, and i'm like you you couldn't do another one and I'm like, nobody ever presses the issue of like, why didn't you help me? Is I didn't help you because you're a fucking cocksucker and I'm not here to lift the weight for you. But it's one of those like, like lucky for them, they don't have a logbook because what the fuck would you yeah. put in your logbook? Like I did nine, but he helped me. And they'll That's turn nice. around and stupid, exactly. They're not stupid questions. Like how much did you help? Like what possible answer could I give you that'll make you feel good about yourself? Like a lot. Uh, I didn't help at all. I, I mean, if I don't say I helped you much, you're just going to be disappointed in the next session when you realize I was lying to you. If I said I helped you a lot, you're just going to be upset then. You should be upset either way because you're not actually lifting the weight. So I think like if you're doing a whole lot of forced reps that you don't even know how to logbook, you're wasting your time. If you're doing a whole lot of sets that are not even close to failure, you're wasting your time. Then there's the question of between four reps in reserve, zero reps in reserve, what's the trade-off of volume and intensity and frequency that optimally grows? I don't, I'm not sure I have the answer to the question. I have my own suspicions, but would I put money on them? I really wouldn't. Here's an interesting idea. I think that there is mounting evidence that training exceptionally hard, even in a given set, might activate a disproportionate amount of long-term growth mechanisms like satellite cell proliferation. For example, if you train decently hard, you might be able to get muscle growth just from uh, activation of DNA, so on and so forth. It gives you growth for like a few days and then it peters out and it's not anything like structural growth. Like it's not a big change. And if you keep training like that, like most of the studies they've done on undergraduate untrained people, that's all the growth they're experiencing anyway is growth that doesn't take a whole lot of structural manipulation of the muscle fiber. It's just sort of easy growth. And then, you know, 12 weeks later, they're like, oh, high frequency works better. Uh, there may be a type of growth that is only signaled best with exceptionally overloading, exceptionally difficult training that initiates, for example, satellite cell proliferation, which does not register as muscle growth for weeks until those satellite cells are inserted into the muscle fiber then around them, they construct their own sarcomeres, so on and so forth. And then the muscle fiber is later much bigger. I think for more advanced people and folks like yourself that are so close to your genetic limits, there may be no alternative for muscle growth than to train that hard. Like every set, like I think you talk about those reps, the grinder reps, like the do you think you have a rep or not reps, those might constitute a bigger fraction of your growth than they would somebody else's growth that's just starting out or just an intermediate because of the long-term mechanism they signal. I'm not sure how true that is. Like it's definitely true to some extent, but if there's this huge gap, I might've just been wasting my time with submaximal work for the last five years or some shit like that. And you might be right on the money. On the other hand, if it's not a big benefit, you could have been benefiting from training two or one reps shy and, and doing more sets and not beating yourself up as much training zero. So it, there's a lot of sure. there's stuff there that we just have no idea if it's true or not. Like I, what, what makes me certainly um, ask these 
questions is because, as you say, I, I feel like I am starting to reach my, my genetic kind of potential to be able to keep adding more muscle mass. So then now I'm at the point where I need to think, how can I step forward from here? Is there something that I need to change or potentially I can change to try to keep progressing? Um, and and it's certainly it, a consideration is training with reps and reserve, seeing how much more total volume per week that I could accrue, and then monitoring that compared to what I was doing previously. You know, I, I'm, I'm, are you comfortable with having uh, references to uh, special sports supplements and pharmacology or, or not, not, not particularly? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So what I think might be a viable strategy for somebody that's using uh, sport pharmacology, we'll say, is when you are in gaining phases that are highly dependent on driving a shitload of insulin, it might be a good idea for maximum pumps and for maximum sarcoplasmic hypertrophy to go through phases shy of shy of failure, but a shitload of sets. Then once you back off and use more androgenic substances and less insulin to harden up the hypertrophy, it might be more beneficial to train how you currently train, which is super hardcore, lower volume, real close to failure, not a ton of volume. And in that way, I think pairing those two approaches, you sort of put each approach where it belongs. And I don't think that just applies to people using insulin. I think it applies to most people. I think maybe a really good way to train is having phases of higher frequency, higher volume, shy of failure training to really just basically get the muscle growth stuff, the metabolite stimulus, and the uh, uh, pump, because you know the pump is actually like having a muscle pump, self-swelling directly stimulates muscle growth. It's probably not a very long-lasting process, but it does happen. And, and in the in all the literature, high-frequency approaches with high volumes work the most, work the best to grow muscle in the short term. But they're just not sustainable. So perhaps yeah. taking several months of a higher-frequency approach with more reps in reserve, and then switching gears and taking a couple of months of progression in intensity with maximum effort per set, lower volumes, higher rest uh, intervals between workouts. And then that gives you sort of two, be two benefits. One, it gives you the benefit of hitting both pathways of growth. Another one, it really breaks up the monotony. Like so for example, those guys that can't handle the training of pushing yourself that hard, maybe they can handle just a switch to higher volume, higher frequency training. Now, truth be told, both approaches are hard as fuck. Like, yeah, pushing yourself real hard on a set or two every couple of days is tough, but doing two reps in reserve for six to eight sets per session, and you do three of those sessions each muscle group three times a week, fuck. You show up for your last back workout, you're like, I don't want to be here at all. I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing. And it's not it's not yeah. challenging in the sense that, like, you still have a logbook, but you don't really get to grind at every set, so it's not even that fun. You're just like a fucking robot. You're doing this bullshit. That's challenging in its own way. But because it's different, maybe psychologically, you're more apt to do it when you've been doing the other training for so long. So I think maybe pairing those two, like you have a, a phase of higher frequency and lighter weights and more volumes and shy of failure with a phase of something like you do it, lower frequency, higher uh, intensity, closer to failure, and then maybe take a little break after that. Uh, you know, several weeks to put your body back together and then going through that process again, that might be a potential way forward for sort of the best of both worlds. And uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I agree. I, I, I certainly think that that would be certainly be a good way. I think that I would struggle with reps in reserve initially. I think, I think I, that, would be, that would be really hard for me. I've never done a sit in my life with reps in reserve. 
Yeah. Uh, I think the good news is that it's, it's not super difficult for the following reason. Week one of your program, you do th what you think is three or four reps in reserve, and then you don't even bother with reps in reserve. The other weeks, you don't even have to guess. You just add like two and a half kilos to the bar or add a rep and to every set and just do as many reps as that is or as, as the same number of reps as you did last time. Sure. And then the reps in reserve kind of takes care of themselves. Because like you think, yeah. if you did three reps in reserve in week one with 150 kilos, 152.5, then 155, then 157.5, eventually you'll get to zero reps in reserve unless you're yeah. just gaining two and a half kilos of strength every fucking week, in which case you'll be a fucking Eddie Hall in no time. Yeah. So uh, so I think that tends to sort of take care of itself. And then you sort of like two or three reps in reserve and then one to two and then eventually zero. So, uh, but it is it is tough, especially like if you've been pushing yourself maximally all the time. Sometimes psychologically it's tough to just fucking stop. And someone's like, how many reps in reserve is that? And you're like, I don't know. Maybe it was four, maybe it was two. Like you never really know until you push yourself all the way, I guess. Yeah, true. It's very true. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, Really interesting. Steve, have you got any questions that, that you want to add? I don't think I necessarily do. It was just very uh, great hearing you guys discuss this. And um, the only thing I was thinking is whether or not, obviously, um, Jordan, you said you didn't have experience with reps and reserve training. It's just interesting. I don't, does, Mike, do you have experience kind of like the way Jordan's trained and kind of what led I, you? I trained like that for a long time. Yeah, I loved it. Um, I didn't know how to deload, so I would just shit the bed every three or four weeks. But I used to train – fuck, I used to combine the worst of both worlds. Unfortunately, I would train zero reps in reserve for multiple sets per session. And I did multiple sessions per week. This is shit you do when you're 19 years old, and luckily you're 19. Um, so I never – and eventually I combined lower frequency with uh, – and lower set number – with very you know close to failure at failure training i really like that approach one of my first influences uh psycho, like to me on the training process was during yates was mike menser so on and so forth and you know one of the beautiful things about their approach is that they were sometimes the only people to take a systematic approach and to take a numbers-based approach like if you're a nerd and you start lifting you're automatically gravitated to that sort of thing because you're like, well, these people actually count stuff. Like, I've never left the logbook. I've since then uh, started to do uh, a more reps and reserve approach, but I still always try to hit relative, you know, to the week before relative PRs every session or every other session. And I approach close to failure. So, so my last week of training is usually failure or very close. And I've never abandoned the logbook. So I've kept all that stuff. But I have, you know, I have pushed to true faith. So, you know, I'm pretty good at counting reps in reserve because I have so much experience pushing to true failure and to gauging reps in reserve. Like, here's an example of reps in reserve and true failure. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I'm sure you're familiar with this. That last rep on the squat where your quads do this and you barely get out of the hole and someone's like, one more. And you're like, you don't understand. Like, that's <laughs> just not happening. <laughs> like, you know, like, especially if you have relatively fast twitch muscles that fatigue, like my quads are pretty fast twitch. As soon as they get that grind rep, I only have one grind rep per set yeah, in the set. squat. That's it. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those situations where it's like, yeah, it's pretty clear how many reps in I don't know, about two or three reps in reserve. Who knows? I know when I'm one rep in reserve. I know when I'm zero reps in reserve. So uh, and, and another thing like that's been brought up is I think intermediates – uh, and this is sort of to the way you train, Jordan. I think intermediates who have been training in the reps and reserve system need to occasionally experience true failure 
and not just be victims of true failure, but see if their true failure really is true failure with all of their psychology behind it. Because it's been shown in research that if you let people say when they're two reps away from failure and then you start yelling at them and making them do more reps, some people have been off by like 12 reps. Can you imagine that? Like they did like nine reps and they're like, I've got one more. And then they did 22 total reps that set instead of, instead of 10. Like, man, your idea of, you know, and the thing is all the, the research says that if you do anything shy of like five reps away from failure, you're just not going to get very good results or hardly any hypertrophy. Those are the kind of people that are like, yeah, I trained, but I'm not getting any size. And then you go to the gym with them and they hit failure and you're like, dude, that's not failure, you fucking asshole. Do another rep and you yell at them and they all of a sudden do another rep. Like, and this is really uh, possible on things like leg press you know, where you just might not want to do another rep or that last rep was really hard and it's easy to just stop trying. But the thing is the leg press is safe. If the leg press comes back down, you'll be fine. You'll just be stuck until your training partners take the weight off. Like unless it's like, you know, most leg presses aren't even deep enough to hurt you. And also there's that distinct uh, feeling in the leg press where you know you might have one more rep, but also it would just be really hard. And that's when most people stop. I don't think you have to stop there. And another thing, I think you and I might both do this um, on the leg press specifically and a couple of other machines. I like to do uh, basically like myo rep cluster sets, call them whatever the fuck you want, rest pauses, where I'll lock my legs out at the top for like three deep breaths and then I go again. And that ends up getting me like three or four sets, all of which are like anywhere from four to fail all the way to zero from fail. And I just keep doing that. I think that's super, super effective way to train. It's definitely, you can't do that on squats because you just run out of air and you'll just die. Um, but I think on things like bicep curls, especially like cable bicep curls, um, upright rows, leg presses, some pressing machines, um, I think that you can absolutely take those breathers and keep going. That's where the logbook comes super fucking handy because if you don't have a logbook, you never know how hard you're trying. But if you have a logbook and it's like, okay, I did 30 total reps last time, except I did them in five mini sets. You look at it and you're like, like I've had times on the leg press where I look at what I did last week and I'm like, God damn it, are you serious? But then I do it again or I get a PR. And I think that kind of training is super beneficial, especially another, when- Another question there that allows me to segue onto then is that when you do those kind of rest balls or myo reps, um, do you keep the number of pauses that you take consistent on each attempt? So like I always take three, for example, I don't then suddenly try to get my, my rep total by taking a fourth or yeah. a fifth. Um, is, yeah. is that something that you keep constant as well? So I think the most intelligent approach is to keep it constant. And here's why. If you're going to calculate your MRV or basically have a, a way of figuring out if you're recovered or not, how do you track your performance? You have to have it under stable conditions, otherwise you don't know. For example, if you did 15 total reps and it took you four mini sets, and then next week with the same amount of weight or let's say five kilos more, you did 13 total reps and it took you the same number of mini sets. That's definitely a decline in performance. Sure. If you repeat that next week, it's time to deload or time to change something because you're clearly under recovery. Um, if, however, you don't know how many mini sets it takes you to do it, then what you end up doing is like, hey, I got 15 again, but it took you five mini sets or it took you four breaths instead of three between, sure. between reps. And then all of a sudden, you could be training for weeks 
over your maximum recoverable volume, which just means you're digging a bigger hole for yourself Absolutely. and arguably losing muscle session to session. So yes. it, it has to be something that like, it's not just an opportunity to go nuts and just keep going. It has to be something you track and it has to be something you write down and you look at your sheet like, okay, over three sets, I did this many reps. That means you get the benefit of going close to failure, backing off, close to failure, backing off, but you don't pay the cost of just having no idea if you're actually getting better or not, which is attempting another, another problem. A similar problem occurs with something I call giant sets, but I think I'm wrong. Uh, marathon sets, maybe like you take dumbbell, like dumbbells and you do upright rows with them for like 80 total reps and like however many sets it takes to get that where. If you don't count the number of sets it takes you to get there, or if you're not very careful about other exercises that also use your side delts, you can exceed your maximum recoverable volume and have no idea. Because eventually you could be like, well, it took me 12 sets to get to 80 reps. It only took me nine sets to get to 70. Like, man, that probably means you're actually weaker than you were, which is just not a sustainable way to train. It's not productive. So I think for sure you got to keep track of that stuff. Sure, sure. I also find myself removing those things once I'm into a caloric deficit as well. So like the Maya reps or the rest pause sets, just I find them kind of, I, I, the, the fatigue that they accumulate for me in terms of like my neurological capabilities, they absolutely destroy me. Um, so then when I'm looking to just maintain muscle, I don't even then implement those strategies because I, I just find them just too, too aggressive for me personally. Yeah, I, that's a really good idea. I think when you have a caloric surplus to play with, your magnitude of fatigue tolerance, your recovery ability is bigger. So you can dump more shit that has a bigger stimulus with it, but pays a bigger cost of fatigue. Yeah. On the other hand, when you are training in such a way that you know your fatigue tolerance is really low, you got to be real wise with what you put in that bucket because sure. the bucket's just not that big anymore. And sometimes. That's the thing is fat loss training. Sometimes your training in the gym is just not as sexy as it, it looks on your off season, yeah. um, which is actually really funny to me. Like maybe it's, I don't know, it's easier to understand in a pharmacological context than it is in any other. Cause you'll have bodybuilders be like, I'm stronger in my fat loss phase than I am in my off season. Like I train even harder. And it's like, yeah, I guess it's cause you're off season. You're only running like a gram total. And then in your fucking pre-contest, you run like four grams and a gram and a half of that is trend. Like, yeah, if you take enough trend, you can just keep getting stronger until you literally fall into pieces, which also happens. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, that, then you can understand why they would say that. But I think ideally, um, you your amount of gear that you run off-season versus contest is a little bit more similar so that you know, you end up growing as much as you can in your off season and not underdosing yourself. And in addition to that, there's only so much gear you can run pre-contest until you're just shooting yourself for no goddamn good reason at all. Like, sure. I've never been convinced that taking more than five grams total is just getting you anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know where you're going at that point. Absolutely. I, I very much agree. I very much agree. Um, so. Cool. I think, um, I think we covered some pretty exciting stuff there. I, I certainly benefited a lot from it so if, if anyone else didn't then fuck them I'm happy. <laughs> so thank dude thank you so much for the conversation it's an it's an honor let me recap quickly what like we sort of concluded fuck the logbook i don't even know how to read or write go into the gym fucking just do rep after rep shit loads of volume 80 sets of workout and you just you're gonna get big if the fucking willpower is strong enough <laughs>
<laughs> Don't sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, can you please sound like that? I'm going to troll people. And it's like, look, if you believe this, you're stupid enough to believe it, fuck it. You deserve everything you've got coming to you. People who don't have a clue what you talk about normally, Mike. You know, it's interesting. Like the the British are really good about sarcasm and understanding it. Some other people just aren't. And I have trouble because I'm really sarcastic. So sometimes on Instagram, I'll put like a sarcastic comment and people are like, really, Dr. Mike? I'm like, no, not really. This is what I, what I said was completely insane. And like, you need to put an emoji so when we know you're sarcastic, like if you're that bad at reading sarcasm, every bad thing in life you've got coming to you. Fuck you. I'm not a part of the problem. I'm just a preview of how much your life is going to suck if you're that fucking dense. Anyway. <laughs> Oh. brilliant thank you guys so much for this oh, discussion i think it's been pleasure. brilliant it's pleasure. thank um, you so much steve uh, thanks jordan uh, cheers, man. yeah I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch again at some point i'll probably tap you up for some more information very cool i'll see you on instagram in any case Fantastic. Cheers, cheers guys right. bye